The unfortunate thing about where we've ended up with competes is despite those lofty targets for what we should be spending on science, we never hit those targets, didn't even come close. And that's one of the things that I think is a lesson as we see chips get passed. Interestingly enough, the money for the semiconductor industry is in fact real money. On August 9th, Biden signed the Chips and Science Act into law. But what's it going to do for science? To discuss, we have today with us Tim Clancy, founder of Arch Street Consulting and former congressional staffer and NSF official, and Toby Smith, senior VP for science policy at the Association of American Universities, who also spent a lot of time on the Hill. Yep. Co-hosting with me today is Jacob Felgois, who recently wrote a column on the act in the China Talk newsletter, which you should all sign up to read. Now, I even bought a new URL, chinatalk.media. Check it out. Welcome to China Talk, everyone. Toby. Where did the NSF come from? Oh, the NSF, we, we go back historically, uh, it really grew out of the recognition in World War II of the importance of science, that science had played a critical role in helping us to win the war. And it wasn't just the atomic bomb. Certainly that was a key point, but the, the, the key leader for science at the time was guy, uh, an MIT conservative MIT engineer, named Vannevar Bush, and Bush led the science efforts related to the war. And there were advances in new health blood substitutes. We had radar that was developed during the war. Uh, a lot of uh, even precision guided uh, bombs, munitions were, were developed. The recognition of that led Franklin Roosevelt, FDR, to ask Bush towards the end of the war to come up with a plan and a scheme to support science in peacetime. And the resulting report that Bush wrote was called Science, the Endless Frontier, submitted it to then Harry Truman because FDR had passed away in July of 1945. That became the idea of creating one national science foundation that would support science to support all the other mission agencies. Now. NSF actually didn't end up quite doing that because other agencies went forward to support. Uh, it took five years to pass the bill. Other agencies kept funding research. The Department of Defense, they funded defense research. The uh, National, Institute of, National Institute of Health merged with the National Institute of Cancer to become the National Institutes of Health. They funded health-related research. And then uh, even the Atomic Energy Commission, the precursor to the Department of Energy, uh, they funded, they wanted to understand if fission could uh, be used for civilian energy purposes. They also wanted to understand the radiation effects, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the effects of radiation on human health. So they funded mission-based research. And in some sense, you know, Bush had envisioned this one agency to support other mission agencies. NSF really became focused on basic research, kind of blue sky research, research that the government wouldn't fund. Bush believed strongly in that. It is interesting though, because there were attempts to kind of be, create a much more applied organization to support science and technology in post-war era. In fact, a guy named Harley Kilgore, 1942, introduced a, a bill to create a national technology foundation. So, so that's some of the history of NSF and why the focus for so long has really been on basic science. Sure. So let's let's take us through the decades. Um, this tension between basic and applied is something that you know, pops its head up every few years, it seems. Yes, it's a it's a constant tension within 
uh, government support for uh, science and science technology. Oftentimes, the uh, debate is shaped by um, ideological or um, views on the role of government within um, the economy. And so oftentimes technology, support for technology is seen as a, a interference in the, uh, the economy in a way that the private sector should be uh, um, advancing technological innovation. Often the, uh, the fruits of the uh, R&D that the government may sponsor may not be coming to market fast enough or uh, it may not be meeting certain um, societal goals and um, typically this uh, comes up during uh, moments of crisis. Um, and almost every decade there has been a crisis by which Congress has looked to the science and engineering enterprise and said, we need to do something. And we need to do something now. Not, you know, 10 years from now or 20 years from now, we need to have, you know, we need to meet the crisis of the moment. And there'll often be calls for the science enterprise to deliver in the short term. And so there has always been the same, whether that goes back to the Sputnik moment of the 50s, to the space race of the 60s, to the oil shocks of the 70s, to the rise of Japan in the 1980s. In fact, if you look at what we talk about today in terms of competitive programs, you can make a direct line to almost every single one of those decade, decadal crises. Um, the Department of Energy, was created in the 70s in response to the uh, oil shocks of the 1970s, the manufacturing centric partnership and a variety of different NIST uh, technical programs were created during the 80s um, under the threat of Japan. So uh, there's a myriad number of those types of crises that have influenced uh, government science investment. Important just to add to that, th this, issue of whether you invest in technology, you invest in base, more basic science has often been divided along partisan lines. So Democrats have typically been much more willing to invest in, uh, invest in applied research or to push the bounds of industrial policy, while Republicans have, have been much more uh, prone to argue that the government shouldn't get involved in picking winners and losers in technology or or that, that that the market should at some point decide which technology survive and that's 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 where industry needs to pick up that was going back historically again that was bush's view he was it was interesting because he was he was a conservative even though he was worked with fdr he was conservative kill people like kilgore they were new deal he was a new deal democrat so that ideological view has has been the case, but I think we've started to see some shifts in the thinking, especially when you look at other countries like China and the fact that they haven't necessarily maintained that same view about, about picking winners or losers or investing in later stage technologies. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit. So on the one hand, you have this idea that like, okay, China's doing it and they're beating us. It's kind of the same thing you saw in the seventies, right? In the, in the seventies and eighties with Japan, it's like, wow, Japan, they have these Saibatsu and they're all colluding and they have all this government support or whatever. Uh, but interestingly, like it took the GOP really until like the Trump era um, to 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 really put their back into industrial policy, you, you, regardless of, you know, cutting tax rates and and sort of other like pro-business initiatives um, through the Reagan and and um, and uh, 
you know, H and W Bush eras, uh, straight subsidies at the level of of a chip sack weren't necessarily didn't necessarily seem to be in the cards. So what do you think sort of yeah, I mean, you could frame it two ways. How did, you know, the anti-industrial policy folks hold out so long or what did it take to finally tip the balance over the past few years towards leaning more into this sort of approach? I think that um, that attitude was always there within the um, Republicans, but mostly limited, in other words, uh, favorability to applied research and other types, but mostly in the area of national security. So. Um, within the DOD, of course, has a extremely large um, applied research and development. In other words, they developed systems from end to end. That was the hallmark of the Defense Department's R&D enterprise and ASVET. And we probably don't have a time to even get into how that model is failed. Um, and even the Defense Department admits that it has failed. And that, let's say failed in the sense that it has um, it, it been a major disaster is just that the challenges of technology are such that the system of the national security and RD enterprise no longer fits at the previous, particularly in the areas of information technology, fast moving technologies that um, uh, are often adopted much swiftly, much more swiftly in the civilian realm. So, but to go back to the original point about the NSF and, and, and the civilian R&D, um, yes, it tended to be in the civilian R&D investment. There was this bright line that thou shall not cross. Pick winners and losers, as Toby said. It cannot do that. Now we're, we're seeing sort of a blend, a mix between the, um, and, 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 and that, I mean, anyways, Toby, maybe you want to talk about it. I mean, NSF was originally envisioned as a, in partly a national security, um, institution, but it did not evolve that way because the the defense services created their own um, R&D and the Office of Naval Research and the Naval Research Laboratory and then the Air Force and the Army, and they all had their own so that the NSF did not become a national security agency. It remained a strictly civilian enterprise. That was the vision. And if you look at the Organic Act for the National Science Foundation, national defense is one of its responsibilities, but Defense Department, yeah. Defense Department, one of the interesting things about the U.S. system for support for science, which happened by accident, it was not really what Bush recommended in the Ellis Frontier, was that we have, compared to any other country in the world, we have a more pluralistic system of support for science, which is why we have multiple agencies, mission-based agencies that support science, and then the NSF that has traditionally supported that basic uh, fundamental science, but there is a view, I think, that has kind of pushed on, on the industrial policy piece, even with NSF, and it's why one of the things the new, uh, the new, the, this the Chips Plus Science Bill does is create this new technology directorate. Is there was a view that the way innovation happened was a linear pathway that you had you you fund basic research, it would lead to apply research, that would lead to development. That view has pretty much been discredited. And that was the view that, that Vannevar Bush had. It's a much more dynamic process. Sometimes in the development of some, a product, you realize you need knowledge. And if you are, have the develop, the, the folks who are doing the develop, the technology development, working with the folks who are doing the fundamental research, you have a much better process to get things 
out to get them uh, so they're marketable. So that's, that's, I think, one of the things that has really driven the change in thinking uh, here recently, along with the fact that other countries have been successful at, at, at supporting a, a, a longer continuum of applied research and development work and putting some subsidization into what we often refer to as crossing the valley of death, that, you know, kind of investing and getting new knowledge out that's high risk because the investors just won't take that risk and invest in the, in the private sector to get those technologies developed. I wanted to come back to the sort of Defense Department analogy. Um, you know, it's very trendy right now. Yeah, let's blur the line. Let's like more move closer to applied research. But I think it's important to to recall that this can go horribly, horribly wrong. Well, one of the things I think that which, which may become a, a growing issue for NSF as it gets into technology has always been so you have RDT&E, testing evaluation is a critical part of that. And you have half the, you have a significant part of the Defense Department that wants to invest in the testing evaluation piece. So there's always this push and pull between how much to invest in basic science, how much, and even the applied science. And that's where it's sometimes hard to get that. And as you start to invest more in the things that a lot of people can relate to, the technology, it's hard to make the case but it's critical that we invest in the basic science because oftentimes it is from that basic science where you get the ideas that you never expected you would have. They might have a totally different application, but that's where some of the most important discoveries have actually ended up coming from. And that you cannot predict at the outset, like I'm going to solve this societal problem. You have to do that underlying, and, and that's been one of the strengths of the U.S. system. Again, the fact we have multiple agencies looking and funding science, including Department of Defense, but over time, a lot of shift in terms of where we're putting a lot of our money has gone into health research in, in, uh, in recent years. And it's harder to make that case in, within defense of that critical, the critical value of the basic science that Department of Defense does. So... Uh Sorry, if you, if you could lead us through uh, some of the previous efforts to reform the NSF, and in particular, the competes bills, previous competes bills. If you go back to the early 2000s, there was growing concern uh, about competition, particularly from China. And what was, I think, having worked, you know, for universities for a long time, that concern didn't only come from the universities and their researchers, but we started to see industry become much more engaged, involved organizations like the Council on Competitiveness, National Association of Manufacturers, uh, Business Roundtable started to issue a number of reports that focused on the need to invest in science and that other countries were investing not only in science, but the scientific workforce that would drive the, you know, the industries of the future. Uh, that kind of led to the culmination in a seminal report called Rising Above the Gathering Storm that the uh, Norm Augustine, who had been the uh, CEO of Lockheed Martin, uh, chaired and uh, the committee that wrote the report. And it caught everybody's attention around this town, kind of the culmination of all these other reports was this National Academies of Sciences report that Augustine led. And it wasn't long after that, that 
Uh, then uh, President Bush at the time announced that they were going to double funding for the physical sciences. It wasn't just NSF, but it was other agencies. That in 2007 led to major legislation called the America Competes Act. It was passed, but it was an authorization bill. And that's one thing we'll talk about with even regards to chips is it, it set targets for funding. It didn't actually provide real appropriated funds. Another competes bill was passed in 2010, similarly focusing on what do we need to invest in, in terms of science, uh, research agencies, NSF, Department of Energy, Office of Science, and, and workforce training. But again, it was an authorization bill. The unfortunate thing about where we've ended up with competes is despite those lofty targets for what we should be spending on science, we never hit those targets, didn't even come close. And that's one of the things that I think is a lesson as we see chips get passed. Interestingly enough, the money for the semiconductor industry is in fact real money and it is emergency spending. The 52 billion that's in there to, to help shore up uh, chip manufacturing domestically. But the money for NSF, the money for the Department of uh, Energy Office of Science, that is only targets. Again, it, it sets a cap. It doesn't provide real money. That's kind of the history of the last you know few years uh, in terms of some of the competitive legislation. There was another competes bill, but it didn't even include uh, authorization levels. So are, are you optimistic, less optimistic? Um, does this time feel different, Toby? I think it does feel a little bit different. You know, we, we had hoped that there would be funding and there was originally funding that accompanied the, the, the bill that would have been real funding in the reconciliation bill the Build Back Better bill. But through the negotiations that have had, that have occurred to get that passed, that money, there was, I think, the last bill that would have been passed in the House was like 3.5 billion for NSF. I would have felt much better if that was in the author, in the, the bill that just got passed, uh, the reconciliation bill. But I do think there's an understanding that, and, and through pushing for the CHIPS plus science piece, those of us who've been arguing for the science have made it clear that this cannot just come with authorization funding levels and that we have to, we have to come through with the real funding. And I think the other thing that's different is now you've added this new directorate to NSF and, and to prevent some of that competition between the technology directorate and the rest of the need to fund basic science at NSF, the traditional role of NSF, we're going to have to have more funding. So I'm optimistic uh, in that sense. Yeah, so let's so before we get to the tech directorate, um, Toby, can we get a bit of bit of a peek behind the scenes on um, uh, you know, the the final weeks of of um, you know, going from Yusika to this and how the science portions ended up ended up making it into the final legislation? Yeah, well, I I uh, I mean, we were all watching that and kind of horrified that after all the work that had gone into and, and remember, interestingly enough, and I was at the signing ceremony today for Chips. And, and Senator Schuller actually recounted the original name for this bill was the Endless Frontiers Act. Mm -hmm. Based on what? That report that was written in 1945 by Vannevar Bush. It was really about NSF and the chips piece got added later. But because there was such an imperative on chips, when things, when the politics got tough, it looked like they might just only put the money for the semiconductor industry in. I give a lot of credit to Senator Cantwell, 
who pushed with others to get the science pieces back in. And I think we're, I think it would have been a big mistake because if we are really talking about maintaining U.S. competitors, shoring up, I, it is critical that we work on supply chain issues that it relates to semiconductors and chips, but investing in science, as was the point that was made by that original Rising Above the Gathering Storm report is still critical. And we and other countries like China are investing and we have not been keeping up. So so how does this work? Can can like Intel just buy better lobbyists than, you know, California universities? Like how how does how do we even get to this point in the first place? Sure, of course. Let's face it. Um the industry uh is a powerful industry and has it has a great deal of influence, but I think Turning back a little bit to what Toby said about the competitiveness bill is that once the science um, portions, uh, once that industry saw that that investment in science was so important, going back even earlier than, than Toby was saying into the 90s, that um, that actually had a great deal of influence in Congress on the NSF budget during those during those times, particularly in areas like, again, IT and um uh, certain industries seem were more pro science than maybe others, and you know, obviously, pharma is more interested in um, NIH. But the politics of the the NSF obviously are influenced by you know the universities and the scientific community, and um, but you got also remember as uh, Toby said, very important point. This was a special appropriation; it was an emergency designation. Um, I don't, in my recollection, Toby, other than maybe um, one of the stimulus bills that NSF has ever really had such a uh, infusion of money uh, to to um, accomplish some of these things. And to be quite uh, honest, that's what they're going to need, because really the original vision um, under Endless Frontier was to create some sort of Bell Lab type of around, you know, various Bell Lab concepts around the country in different critical technologies that would be free to uh, develop use-inspired research. That's going to require a billions of dollars of investment that um, the chip science bill envisions, but does not provide. And that NSF, um, uh, like its other scientific agency brethren, are um, subject to annual appropriations, which then um, require the appropriations committees to have the requisite budget. Um, they can only appropriate what they are, what they are uh, capped off within the overall budget, um, and that they have to make trade-offs that are not science. You know, for every dollar that gets spent on science, is not getting spent on, you know, some other uh, uh, societal impaired imperative. Um, so it's not so cut and dry. That's why when somebody says this is a no-brainer, they don't um, appreciate the types of macro trade-offs that have to occur during the annual appropriations. Kind uh thing and, and as I would say in also in response to your earlier question about um optimism or not many a, a science authorization bill has um floundered on the rocky shoals of the appropriations process we pass these bills we get all excited about them everyone says look at all the billions of dollars that we that we uh Congress has um spent that they have not spent you know a, a $3.50 of authorization won't get you a cup of coffee, a cup of coffee at Starbucks. You need actual money <laughs> to buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks. It, 
Yeah, one of the challenges you, you ask about why why emergency spending for the semiconductor industry and not not the broader you know base and research science agencies. I think people it's more tangible. The the issue we're facing with supply chain. People can't buy cars. They can't get things because of why we don't have the chips. So it helps, right now, it it helps it, for the big pumps, the big chip. Yeah, it's uh, across right the big chip, the big thing. Yeah, and and science always, especially if you're talking more basic science, always has a challenge proving what it's going to do for you tomorrow or the next day. It's always a longer term investment. But it's critical. I think that's where some of the, it, you know, some of the emphasis on workforce talent production. I think that's that's you're seeing a little bit of bent, especially in areas around some of these critical technologies that people do relate to. Which, again, uh, is so. This bill is focused on things like artificial intelligence and robotics and advanced manufacturing, things that people do relate to. I think that. And it just remains to be seen is, is that this bill does envision an NSF and a science engineering enterprise that looks more like Europe, for example. People don't want to admit that, but that's very much what the EU does in terms of their horizon program um, in sort of areas of societal need, um, which the, um, the NSF has been primarily a discipline-based allocation of funds. Um, one of politically, not to be cynical about this, but the uh, scientific community likes it that way. So that the biology can say, aha, that's how much money you're getting, you know, this year for biology, or this is how much you're getting this year for physics. And it makes for an actual relatively straightforward way to slice up the budget and helps NSF politically, because of course you have this army of various associations that go, here, we're, we're all for biology or we're all for physics, and yes, we're, we're supportive of the overall NSF budget. Now, if you get into artificial intelligence or other types of areas of societal need, well, what does that mean? What does that, you know, does that mean social sciences are going to be involved? Because obviously that's a huge element of um, artificial intelligence. And, um, and what, but what about, you know, X discipline or that discipline? And that is a challenge to the traditional discipline-based allocation of funds within the NSF. I was going to ask if you could maybe dive in a little bit. You, you alluded to this, you know, desired network of of Bell like Bell Labs like organizations around the country, which I believe you're referring to the the regional innovation hubs. That was the original. You'd have to go back to the original Endless Frontiers um, concept. The regional mm. um, innovation hubs were kind of added later. Um, again, the Endless Frontier. Act was an NSF bill. The other portions were not part of that. Um, but as time goes along and people start adding stuff, the original vision changed. But the the vision was also, again, in the original uh, Endless Frontiers, was heavily tied towards this this applied research. You can call them hubs or centers um, that would be tied to uh, specific critical industries like semiconductor. And so semiconductor wasn't, was always close by. And a good, um, a good example of that is the semiconductor 
um, research facility at Albany, New York, which obviously Senator Schumer is very well aware of. Um, that facility is not a basic research facility, even though there are uh, excellent um, academic faculty there doing uh, really leading edge work. What it what that facility is is a user facility where that allows for close collaboration between um, university um, scholars and researchers and industry. And the industry pays in quite a substantial amount um, to be present there. And so you have um, you know, leaders like IBM, Global Foundries, Applied Materials, and other industry leaders within the semiconductor facility, but it is a sort of shared applied research environment. And that kind of encapsulates uh, the original Endless Frontiers um, uh, bill was looking to support that type of collaborative environment. The, the other thing though, you know, I it's really important to note that the other key component of the Endless Frontiers Act and something that Bush believed in strongly was that universities should be a central component of the innovation system in the United States. And so even before we got to the NSF, he wanted to bring university researchers into the fold to do defense research. In fact, it's interesting because the universities prior to the war didn't really want to accept federal funding. They took money from the Carnegie's and the Rockefellers. They were worried if they took government funding, the government would tell them what kind of research they could and couldn't do. Bush saw that and being an MIT engineer and having come from MIT, uh, felt there was tremendous value if the government could leverage faculty on campuses and through competitive grants or contracts use universities, keep the faculty at the university, not have them come to national labs. Why? Because they could then train the next generation of scientists. That's also a unique part of the U.S. system is that when we fund research grants, those grants sort not only the new innovation, they support graduate students who often get their education funded off of those grants and are critical to doing that research. So it's important to know that universities were a part of that vision. And that has been a core role of the NSF is that peer review system, you know, competitive research funding, not, there's another view that again, others like Harley Kilgore promoted is if you're gonna create a new system for supportive science, maybe we should spread that money all around like peanut butter and give each state a block grant. That wasn't the system. It was, it was based on competition, peer review, merit, and scientists judging other scientists. Universities were a central component as they remain, and that made the U.S. system unique compared to other countries because they didn't necessarily, they, they picked up on the U.S. Uh, system and the way universities are utilized, but it was done differently. The, uh, the first uh, history of NSF was entitled A Patron of Pure Science, and that was the vision. That was what, um, and it, it remained the core of what NSF does today that often misunderstood. They have a system that Toby described of meritocracy, of peer review, and that has proven great value for the United States. It, you know, it provides sort of a, a natural uh, uh, system for letting great ideas come to the fore. Now, there are flaws with that, and then there, that's not the only um, 
a way to fund science. And that's not even the only way that science was funded in the United States. Um, there we, as again, as Toby said, we have a diversity of uh, pathways to fund science and technology. Uh, DARPA takes a different model. NIH takes a slightly, slightly different, but similar to NSF, but slightly different. And then other agencies um, uh, do things differently as well. So, and that has, again, served the United States very well. Oftentimes you see in, in attempts to reform, uh, people will say, oh, you need to be more like DARPA because they do so awesome. Or you need to be more like NSF because they do so awesome. And the answer is actually, there's plenty of room for all of those um, uh, pathways. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm curious, my, my understanding is that there were some who wanted the tech directorate to be outside of NSF, maybe an independent agency. If that could have been politically possible, would you have pushed for something like that as opposed to integrating it into NSF? I'm not sure we, we have a strong view, but you're right that there have been arguments made in the past that there should be a, in addition to a national science foundation and national technology foundation, I personally think integrating them makes sense for the very reasons I talked about the dynamic model. And the more you separate the technology piece from the, from the basic research, if you don't have the folks on kind of who need the new knowledge, talking to the folks who are developing the new knowledge, I think you lose something in the, in the translation. And um, that's been one of the problems is we, and, and I think one of the things about like the new manufacturing innovation institutes is we actually get the the people who need the advanced manufacturing technologies, you know, from industry working hand in glove with those folks who are thinking about those basic ideas. And that interaction transforms and thinks and, and makes those folks thinking of the new knowledge think a little bit differently, a little bit further out. That that helps us to again get things from the bench out into the marketplace and so they can actually be applied. So bringing those people together, and that's actually, you know, one of the fundamental differences, I think, between like the DARPA model, which has always been high risk, you know, people who are thinking about really crazy ideas, but they're also thinking if I could solve this problem, here's what it would be used for. So that use inspired research, the kind of research that we talk about, you know, that, that where, where, uh, a researcher is actually thinking not only about the new knowledge, but how could they apply it if they hadn't? Yeah, I think that um, going forward, it's going to require the foundation and many American institutions, including universities, to evolve. The foundation is evolving. They are changing. You know, as we've seen, they've already started the engines and other, the TIP directors always been stood up prior to the legislation being created. They also established what's known as the Convergence Accelerator Program a couple of years ago, um, where again, use-inspired research is, is prioritized and collaboration types of collisions are uh, have been funded. But there's still a lot that needs to be sorted out. And 
also things to be sorted out politically that and things could get not so good if the money really isn't there to um, achieve the vision of the tip directorate if um if congress goes oh well no we you know there's there's uh we've already paid for for these things and it doesn't get to the critical mass that is necessary people may say oh it didn't work it was a failure but in part because it was never truly launched in the way that it needed to do and that's what i mean by the critical mass and that also um some elements of the scientific community i'm sure they're still saying this today view some of these um initiatives as a zero-sum game as if technology gets x we're getting screwed and we're not getting and that's bad and we can't have that so um there's going to be much more um work that needs to be done to ensure that one the principles that make nsf a, the agency that it is remain strong but at the same time that it evolves in a way that's going to meet areas of national need in ways that never really have never really done and that's not an insignificant um challenge and the way i often like to describe it to people is it's a right-handed boxer trying to fight left hand because you're taking a a system a peer review that works well say within a discipline based focus and now you're going to take it into other and analyze other types of um activities that may or may not be so um amenable to that type of analysis, um, like regional innovation. That's a perfect example, in fact. Regional innovation, you do not want to um, uh, create new discoveries for regional innovation. That's a, you want to be able to have some sort of risk aversion to be able to create jobs and new economic activity. You may need to do things different and new, that's, that's novelty is good, but new discoveries and risk-taking in regional innovation can lead to disaster and recrimination. Let's talk a little bit about personnel for a second, Tim. You know, I don't think I want a Nobel laureate in biology running, you know, a uh, uh, the the tech innovation, um, uh, sort of the tech innovation or the regional hub stuff. Like, what are the types of people that are now going to be needed to staff these things? And does the NSF, you know, have the um, institutional flexibility to allow those types of folks to to do the best jobs that they um, uh, that they could? Excellent, excellent point. And so I, uh, I was thinking the exact same thing as we were, I was actually sitting in on a proposer's day for the um, regional uh, and the engines program at NSF, which their inaugural um, go around, which they're uh, in, the, in the process of uh, um, inviting proposals. And so they had a proposal's day la uh, last week. And um, what you saw, and, and I was very, I was very, intensely interested in seeing who were some of the new program officers and what were their backgrounds. Many of them, Toby will be uh, pleased to know, that are former AAAS fellows and other types of young PhDs who are, have changed careers and gone and uh, into a sort of a different, uh, a, a different uh, career path. So uh, you see mostly people with still PhD background, but they tend, they've tended to be younger. Um, many are women which is great. Many are people of color, also great. So they haven't simply repurposed, um, you know, okay, Fred, you were working on these bio uh, proposals and now you're getting tasked with looking at, um, you know, regional innovation. Um, no, they have uh, done some, some interesting and excellent hires, I think, 
The other thing too, though, is that most of the funding decisions are going to flow out of the peer review panels themselves. So it's actually the composition of panels that um, matter the most, even more than the program um, officers themselves. And that's going to be interesting to see how um, that shapes out. That's still an unknown. I think the other, the other piece of this is that there is a cultural shift going on in campuses where it used to be that faculty, and it's still the case, they get recognized for how much they publish. But more and more, they are getting recognized and and for purposes of promotion and tenure by the degree to which they're doing other service activities, particularly that lead to economic development. Now, that's that's really moving from a publish or perish mentality to a patent or perish mentality. I don't think it's one or the other, but you had places like MIT that they were they were the industrial land grant, right? They got the mechanical side of the AM. They didn't get the agriculture piece, often say, if you would have created land-grant universities post-industrial revolution, you would have ended up with a lot more MITs, where if you're a graduate student, the cool thing to do there is start a company, not get it. You know, yes, you want to help your faculty, your advisor get a paper published, but you want to start a company. Why? Because that's what all MIT faculty have done. That has not been the case at other universities, but through programs like the TIP Directorate that have been moved into the TIP Directorate, the i program which is really about how do we train faculty think a step beyond their, their basic research to maybe there's an application. And if so, how could I start a company? What would that application be? And go talk to people who are early stage investors, who, who have started startups, who know the technology that they might, where there might be an application. And the i program has been tremendously valuable in starting to change that culture, to shift it, to make faculty more like the ones that that when I first started in the university community were at MIT and I think other universities were starting to see move that direction. So I think that's what your that cultural shift is somewhat reflected at the national level with the evolution to create TIP because there is this shift and universities themselves are moving beyond just the traditional kind of focus on research, education and service to a fourth mission which is economic development. And that gets to tech transfer, but also, you know, I was just in Detroit uh, and you look at Wayne State, Michigan and Michigan State and the work they are putting in efforts, they jointly are putting into, along with some of the other universities there, uh, really redevelopment in downtown Detroit uh, around things like advanced manufacturing, things that are gonna jumpstart the economy there. I think that that's, well, two things. So listening to what Toby was saying is that one of the things in my work today that um, particularly in tech-based economic development and regional growth and other types of things is that we, we discount and we don't fully appreciate the differing incentives that the various players um, within the um, innovation ecosystem come with and, and have. In other words, a traditionally a faculty member had to uh, publish and communicate within his or her peer group. So people often will say, oh, university faculty, they can't write or they can't do this. No, they actually are very excellent communicators within their peer group because that is their incentive. That is what they, traditionally, that was their incentive. That's how they get grants. That's how they get um, major publications within journals. So if you can change the incentive structure, as Toby was saying, that that's gonna have a tremendous uh, impact for the university. By the way, the same exists within um, industry as well. 
In other words, the incentives are for, oh, I'm going to, you know, get my series A or my series B or other types of, or, or within say engineering, um, the engineering discipline of prototyping rather than maybe some other type of um, economic uh, incentive for creating a startup or, or, or whatnot. Oftentimes engineers were found in traditional research lab that they created a prototype and then handed it off to somebody that somebody else who then commercialized it. And that still exists even within national labs today, uh, both within the Department of Energy and the Defense Department. So those types of incentive structures, we haven't really even, we've just started to scratch the surface on that. But it's, it's something that's gonna be critical if you're gonna find this vision for broader innovation research yeah, research division, research driven innovation hubs. Is there anything that you see in the bill that's just passed the Chips and Science Act that could be a forcing factor for that kind of change or change more broadly? Sort of. Yeah, I guess it's the answer to that. It, it remains to be seen. It could. These are sort of details that, of course, you know, congressional legislation isn't, and I don't think would be prudent to really get into. You want to be able to, but you want to be able to, um, to have some attention paid to that the, the agencies themselves, like an NSF or Department of Commerce or DOE, and they, they are, again, as Toby was saying, and, and the, and the universities themselves are trying to evolve and that we probably need to have, you know, maybe an additional, um, you know, rising report on what does a robust innovation ecosystem or innovation ecosystem look like? What are the elements that um, that should be, what are the, the standard elements? And I think this incentive recognition of incentives is, is one of them. I think that's something the community really could, you know, and there are mechanisms to be able to, to do that. So yeah, I, I think that that's uh, something that I would recommend. One of the things that is always is incentive for, for universities and researchers is where's the money and what's being funded. So the fact that the TIP directorate exists and is funding these things, uh, and faculty do get recognized and rewarded for getting grants or getting, you know, winning awards. And if you look at Tim mentioned the innovation engines program and how much interest that is generated now. A debate whether one of the concerns is will there be enough funding to actually fund those new innovation engines because you look at the map and there are over 120 proposals that have been some you know kind of concept papers they're going to work oh no 800 800, 800. okay i'm way Eight, off then yeah 800 i it was either 800 or 700 i'm sorry i um for 55 50 planning grant 50 planning grants of a million apiece of five center uh you know, national centers, which I think are what, 16 million a piece or something yep. like that. No, one important thing about that is when you look at how those grant, how those concepts and what's happening on campuses is they are pulling together multidisciplinary teams across not only a campus, but multiple campuses and pulling in outside, outside uh, organizations, manufacturers, you know, local economic development groups. Um, because these are supposed to be regional innovation engines. And so it is alone changing what people are thinking in terms of how they do research and what NSF wants. So I think some of the incentives will be driven just by the fact that some of these new programs are going to drive change, not only at institutions, but, but other, other organizations that 
critical to evolving the innovation ecosystem? I think um, to kind of clarify a little bit about, about incentives to what I was kind of talking about is for the various players in the game, whether you're an academic researcher or you're a startup or you're a CEO of a, you know, a company or you're in um, you know, a nonprofit or you're in a research lab, everyone within the, that ecosystem has a greater understanding and appreciation of what the differing incentive structures are so that you're able to create sort of a more uh, cohesive whole for innovation. Um, each one of those, you know, or players in the game have an important function and a critical one at that. Um, but that oftentimes um, people come out and, and, and look and say, oh, well, the university is not producing this or, you know, the, the, the company is derivative and it's not really, you know, on the on leading edge. Well, they try to come up with these collaborations, but they often, you know, don't bear uh, very good fruit because people are often talking over each other or or um, thinking somewhat differently and not appreciating what the um, the various incentive structures that people in the game are thinking about. Um, that is particularly true of regional innovation. You know, an individual company needs to make money. They're, they're not, they're, their concern isn't job growth within such and such county. Yeah, they wanna have a, work, a workforce that is technically trained and available that they can recruit from, but they also don't wanna be engaged in um, activities that are going to help their competition. That that's just business. That's just uh, economy. And the same thing with the university has a public benefit mission, but they're also um, have to do pull in their ring. And so that actually is we're we're sort of getting down in the weeds of the um, the engines concept. But that is what they're trying to get at. Everyone needs to be in the boat rowing with their oar, but they need to be rowing in sync. And so. This is, you know, it, it's an interesting case study, you know, in terms of science policy, of how the NSF is going to pull this off. Um, I think it's going to take some time, you know, several rounds of, of proposals and um, hopefully failures. That's another thing um, that I want to, while I think about that, the NSF is in part great because it failed. Grants don't go anywhere. Uh, studies get published and maybe we, we realize that that area of science is a dead end. And and now we're in a situation where we're on this high wire act and, and the NSF is going to be required to spur innovation. But are they going to be allowed to fail? I would sir, we want them to fail. We want it because otherwise we don't learn anything. We don't understand and we don't make progress and we don't advance the, the knowledge and understanding of how to improve innovation. And if we're going to be in a risk-averse situation, um, that's going to be a problem. And and by the way, that actually also um, goes into our earlier discussion of basic versus applied research. You know, basic research is about okay. Well, we went down this path and it didn't work. All right. Well, that that doesn't mean that we failed. That means we learned stuff that we know we don't want to go down that path. But oftentimes we're going to be into these applied situations. There's a failure. Politically, there's this huge recrimination going, oh, that was a waste. That was government waste. We don't want to do that. And the, the money gets turned off. That's a, that's a serious concern going forward. And, and to that point, too, sometimes what, what's one day's failure is the solution the next day. And so you look at things like the invention of the laser. 
dubbed a solution in search of problem of a problem by Charles Town at the time it was invented. And he, I, I heard him actually before he passed away, he talked about his, his department chair at Columbia, taking him to task for wasting the department's money on this, this work. Uh, you have things like MRNA uh, could hardly get funded. Look at where we'd be if that research didn't continue and didn't go forward when we need desperately a, a vaccine for COVID-19. Let's stay on that for a second, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's an alternate narrative uh, with mRNA where, um, you know, the researchers had to fight tooth and nail against their universities um, who wanted to kick them out at, you know, various points in times. And, you know, finding funding for that type of work was extremely painful. Um, and there are a lot of sort of contingencies in there under the current funding environment where, in fact, you know, we may not have um, been able to, um, you know, enjoy the benefits of, of the Pfizer and Moderna drug. So um, I guess, you know, sort of flipping that on its head a little bit, maybe reflecting yep. on the failures of that story, you know, to what extent do you think that um, this legislation actually, uh, you know, addresses some of the concerns that um, yep. uh, uh, those researchers faced in their careers? Well, I think part of the intent of this was to be more of a DARPA kind of you know, entity and DARPA has always looked at high risk, high reward. They look at people more sometimes in and what they're what the people are doing and versus this the intense focus on peer review that NSF has had that's project based. Sure. Reviewed by other peers. So I think to Tim's point earlier, you need both. You need ways. And that's one of the benefits of our system is if you maybe get rejected at NSF, you go to a different agency and get funding there. It doesn't always work, but there are these instances where people have looked and figured out a way to find funding despite some of the challenges and kind of barriers that exist in the funding streams that people have, like an NSF funding stream, which you can argue is a little bit more conservative and, and tends to support those ideas that uh, have been recognized as the, the scientific mainstream versus the high risk, high reward things. And I think that's where we, we need to recognize we have to invest in those ideas as well. And those people, most important. The true innovators in the world aren't sitting around talking about innovation. Um, they're out, they're out doing, it, you know, and some of the most Innovative people I've met in my career are some of the most, I hate to say, difficult, sometimes dangerous, and tough people. Because that's just how they were. That's just how they are. It either the field attracts those people, or that um, they have that ability. And uh, men, women uh, of all genders and shapes and sizes, um, that has been the case in my opinion. And those people are often at the same time, maybe not the person to start a company. They might want to be doing something else. So that's what I mean. Everyone has a role to play in these, in these um, situations. We need to have institutions or institutional mechanisms to be able to extract that value for the, for the nation, you know? And once we get too prescriptive on, oh, well, you know, this is how it's done. Um, that's a huge mistake. In my opinion, yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Um, this point on prescription between the the House and the Senate versions uh, of the bill, you know, Yusika versus America competes. It seemed like there were initially different levels of prescription, with the Senate favoring maybe 
a slightly more prescriptive approach than the house. And I'm curious if you're you're happy with how they landed on that. Um, and, you know, if, if you maybe wish they'd done anything differently. I think we were pretty happy with the balance they struck, but you're absolutely right that, that the Senate was originally more prescriptive, prescriptive about the areas of technology. It got scaled back more to some of the societal challenges in the, in the end, but, but there's still those same areas of technology you saw that are clearly highlighted throughout the bill. So I think they did a, a, a pretty good job in striking a balance. I don't know, Tim, Tim, what you think, but we, I think we're pretty pleased. I mean, I, again, I think the original Senate version was much more aligned to like, I was saying before this, creating these Bell Lab concepts around the country. And it was a much different vision that uh, then was ultimately uh, put into law. And there was some pushback in the House, um, what I would call a more traditional um, look at how NSF usually, you know, approaches these types of things, whereas the Senate was, you know, more radical, to be honest with you, in terms of the change. And we, we've gotten through American pragmatism, some degree of compromise on that. But I will say that this whole process is going to be a forcing factor. It is going to force people to change. I think that there will be money. There will be serious money. Will it be enough to um, affect the change necessary? I wish it will be the case, but I, I fortunately experience uh, has taught me not to think that way. Um, that's my, you want my biggest concern is the money will not be enough um, to get us to where um, I think the Congress really want the, to see the results that we really need to see. Um, there's going to have to be a, a significant push to achieve that vision. I would just agree that the big challenge is the money and where we started when Senator Schumer originally started talking about this $100 billion over five years in increase in NSF to where we're at, even with the authorized levels is much lower. And, and then you added, you had the Office of Science and Department of Energy and other agencies. Um, so the real challenge here is going to be getting where we haven't been able to get with the previous competes bill, and that's getting the money to follow the authorized targets. So, uh, that's the next, the next big, um, push. Any, you know, reflections on the youth out there listening, considering careers and science policy, I don't know, what are the, some of the highs, highs and lows about this versus, uh, I don't know, doing it, doing other stuff with your life. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, first of all, I think, I think. We need people who are grounded in science and tech who can also then walk and translate and, and also know the policy world. So it, it is critical that scientists be engaged in policy, understand it. And some of the best scientists are the ones who can kind of walk back and forth and, and also take key positions at agencies like the National Science Foundation or ENOSTP or or at NIH, because we need people, not only who know the policy, but know the science and it's critical. And I would even argue on the other side, we need more people who are scientists who run for office, who, who do understand it and think of questions and the challenges you face in a different way than perhaps the traditional folks who've tended to, to hold political office office, which usually don't come from, from strong science backgrounds. 
Well, I'll I'll make a pitch for the uh, the opposite. So I worked for a man named Sherry Bullard, uh, who Toby knew, um, who was a great friend of science and really one of the first um, individuals to have a competitive agenda. He really was on the forefront, stretching all the way back to the 80s and the MEP and, and other uh, uh, other initiatives back then. Sherry Bullard was not a scientist. He was, and he used to famously say the last science uh, um, uh, class he got was, you know, was a C in chemistry. I, Toby, what did he say? He changed the change of story every, every now and then. <laughs> but the point is, is that Sherry was a non-scientist who grew to recognize the importance of science technology as a, as a policy mechanism for change in the society. So we, had we haven't talked about climate change in the environment. We talked mostly about um, regional economic competitiveness, but there's a whole host of you know, societal imperatives that science has to address then that policymakers have to appreciate how that investment will advance our ability to deal with those problems. And so it, it cannot be that we only rely on people with science and engineering degrees to become members of Congress or become policy wonks. We have to have policy wonks who understand the science and appreciate the science. And that that's why, you know, um, I don't know, you know, they sadly both passed away, Vern Allert, who was a physicist, but Sherry Bullard was the chairman. People always remember, you know, Vern Ehlers just because he was a scientist, but it was really Sherry who um, led many of these legislative fights and won them. And it was because he came out of the policy realm. That was his background. But he grew to appreciate and understand the um, importance of science. So I, I would say the converse is actually just as important, if not more important. So that people with, people with non-science degrees should, you know, look at science policy as an important element, whether or not they, they, they do that for their, you know, their living or whatnot. Um, it, it's still going to be, and will continue to be a critical part of the public policy realm. No question about that. Another person who was, uh, uh, well, two people who are critical in this, in this area who are often either overlooked or, um, they occasionally come up are Carl Sagan, of course. Carl Sagan was one of the great physicists of his generation, but also one of the great humanitarians and um, you know promoters of science and understanding of science in the in the public domain to the point where he was roundly criticized by his own peers as being too much of a grandstander and uh, too uh, much out there currying favor amongst you know um, uh, the power uh, the powers that be. And not a real scientist, because of course that was bad. You wouldn't want to go out there and actually communicate about the wonders of science. You need to be back in the laboratory somewhere. The second person was a person I worked with, and and Toby knows and a lot. Thank, thank, thank God. Is Neil Lane and Neil Lane, who was the science advisor to President Clinton, and he was the uh, director of the NSF when I worked there. And Neil talked about the concept of citizen science, the ability and the the um, opportunity for individual citizens to engage in scientific, you know, activities throughout their lifetime, not just, you know, as a child in ninth grade. Um, that could be as simple as bird watching or any other type of um, uh, observation or enjoyment of the scientific process. Um, 
And that's also, you know, that gets to scientific literacy of the population, but also understanding both, both um, Sagan and Neil um, talked about this issue of we are dealing in a, um, an era of incredible technological and scientific change. But we are not able as a society to be able to fully grasp the consequences of these things. And that's a huge problem for our society, which is why science policy is so important today. We end every podcast with a song. Do you have like a science policy song? Is there like an <laughs> NSF theme song? <laughs> wow, I didn't I didn't really think about that. Um, there are there are science related songs. She blinded me with science. Oh yeah, we're gonna go. Yeah, I knew you were gonna go there. You know, yeah. you want to go? You want to go Beastie Boys with the sound of science, uh, sounds of science. So that's not a particularly melodic. Uh, one of their more melodic songs. Uh, that's a, did Vannevar uh, Bush play the trumpet or something? Oh, by, by the way, by the way, um, just so you know, on the trivia, it's Vannevar. Vannevar pronounced it Vannevar. Vannevar, not Van. Yeah. Vannevar is a Vannevar. Um, and I also will say that Science Theaters Frontier, the, the, um, uh, the report, is also the most cited unread report in the history of report. I don't think, Toby, anyone, it gets cited every, every single science policy document says, and then uh, Vannevar Bush and Science Theaters Frontier, blah, 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 but no one's actually read it, the, the report. Nobody. Toby has. I've I read it. Yeah. Toby and maybe like 10 other people. <laughs> I swear to God. But it's cited in thousands and thousands of documents, but no one's actually read. Well, yeah, shout, out this. shout out to Stripe Press for reprinting pieces of the action. I mean, that was an interesting little surprise. Shout out there. All right. Uh, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. No, thank you for having us. This has been great. Yeah, it's been a great discussion. Sit, sit around and blabber about what we do for a living <laughs> <laughs> i hope people haven't <laughs> completely fallen asleep <laughs>